The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Hi, everyone. This is Sally Ganga. Um, I'll be your host today on today's episode of Getting In a College Coach Conversation. I'm guest hosting for um, Elizabeth Heaton. And just so you know, Ian Fisher, who's another regular guest host, will be on next week. Now on to today. Are you concerned about how you'll be paying for college? Confused about terms like need blind, need aware, and gapping? You're in luck because we'll be talking about all those topics in a few minutes. Our second segment of the day will specifically be talking about what it means when colleges say they are need blind versus when they say they are need aware and how much it impacts admissions for your student. And our third segment will be about gapping in financial aid packages. In other words, when a college says they know you need 20000 per year to attend, but they only give you 15000 So, but first, are you or someone you know applying to Boston College this year? Are you confused about how to tackle their supplemental essay? I'll be talking about that very issue with Karen Spencer, a veteran of 20 years in the education industry and a current college coach educational consultant. Welcome, Karen. Hi, Sally. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. So um, the Boston College Supplemental Essays, I look at them and I kind of, I think that they're interesting, but I also think that they're challenging. So I think it's a good idea to sort of maybe take them one by one and talk about how students might approach each individual topic, keeping in mind um, that they're only supposed to be 400 words or less. So there's really sort of a limit to kind of how in-depth they can get with these questions, which for some students who are more verbose will be a bad thing, but I think for most students will actually be a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so I rarely all right. complain about a shorter word count. So yes. yeah, rarely, but it does happen. It has happened in my experience. Um, all right. So let's start with question number one and I'll read it. And then maybe you can sort of give me some thoughts on it. Fantastic. So, okay. So what contemporary issue or trend relating to politics, culture, and society or foreign policy particularly concerns you and why? So who do you think, like, what kind of student might want to address this question, and what are some of the things that they might want to keep in mind when they're looking at it? So the person that really wants to think about this question is first someone who has, you know, or any of these questions for that matter, kind of a knee-jerk reaction. I always say read all of them and see if there's one that really stands out to you. That doesn't always mean I think it's the best choice sometimes the most obvious choice can come up as a little pedestrian. Um, but, you know, do you really have a thought here on kind of a global scale of something that really troubles you or something that you have already actively done something to address? Um, and, 
You know, we had this question. I used to work at Georgetown, and, and Georgetown School of Foreign Service had almost this identical question on their application. And um, so, you know, a few things I always tell people to think about. First of all, the, the major issue I find with this question is that people forget that there's two parts to this question, right? They focus on the issue, and they forget that there's this little tiny question at the end that says, and why, right? And the admissions officer is more concerned about the and why part than whatever issue you pick, right? This is not for your political science class. We're not interested in evaluating whether, you know, the choice you picked is correct, right? There's not a correct answer to this question. There's a million things you could pick here, right, that we, we could use to fix in the world. Um, you know, and, and it's not like, well, why did you pick homelessness and not poverty? Or, well, even those are very similar. But, you know, why didn't you pick women's issues? You know, we're not judging what you've picked. What we want to know is the why part. Why of all the things in the world that, you know, you could have picked, why does this one bother you the most? Why is this the one that you've chosen to actively, potentially, you know, chosen to try to address through your extracurricular activities? Um, It's that why part. And too often I see students get really focused on the first part and they spend the entire time talking about the issue itself and not saying the why part, which is frankly, like I said, the part the admissions officer is actually really interested in, in learning about. Yeah, actually, I think that's a really good point, because essays that I've seen like this, often the student seems to be trying to convince us of why this essay is so, or why this particular topic might be the worst one. And there's so many that you can never prove that one particular issue is more important than another. So it really does have to be personally rooted in the student's own experiences and feelings about it. Yeah, and, and I always say you might want to spend, you know, a third to half on the issue itself and then at least the other half at, 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 at minimum on why it's important to you. Um, you also have to remember this is not a policy paper. Again, when I worked at Georgetown and I read these essays, you know, the mistake I saw is it looked sounded like something they were writing for their, you know, their, you know, world history class or their U.S. history class or, you know, something where it was very, you know, here's the situation and here I'm going to educate you on that. And, again, that's not the point. I want to know why, you know, this is important to you because it tells me what you value. Mm-hmm. I actually, um, I've had students who kind of struggled with these questions, and one of them came up with, for her, the big issue was civility. And I, I thought, you know, a lot of people would argue that, you know, poverty or more is more important, but this was something that she could relate to and she could write a good essay about because she thought it was, you know, really upsetting when her friends were rude to, like, waiters or something. And I, I thought, you know, and she wrote a good essay about it. So, I mean, what are your thoughts? Is it, does it work even if it's an, es- an issue that to some people might seem less important? Absolutely. In fact, I think sometimes those can be the best because they're less likely to be written about and they're, again, like you said, it's more personal. You know, I worked at Georgetown right after 9-11, and so as you can imagine, that was in the topic du jour for the School of Foreign Service that year. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, but in the same regard, it made it harder to write um, a unique perspective on it because it was such a common topic um, for obviously understandable reasons. But again, I would have been, you know, more than happy to read an essay on, you know, civility or on... Um, you know, someone wrote once on, you know, the the conflict going on in Ireland still, and, you know, which is not something on everybody's radar screen, but it was personal to him for very solid, good reasons. And so I learned more about him. Like I said, I, did, I, I you know, it's not so I can learn about Ireland. It's so I can learn about why this conflict is important to you and what it's telling me about, you know, what you value and, and, and hold close to your heart. 
Okay. All right. Great. Anything you want to add on that, or, or um, I'm good. We... I think we got we okay. got three more to go. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's so let's get moving. Okay. All right. So number two, the topic is many human beings throughout history have found inspiration and joy in literature and works of art. Is there a book, play, poem, movie, painting, music selection, or photograph that has been especially meaningful to you? So what what do you think about that one? So I will also say this is a very similar essay prompt to UVA's, um, one that they have for the College of Arts and Sciences. And so I read this one a lot in many different ways. Um, so I think the first thing is, and I always say this to every student, read the prompt. Okay, Some, a lot of times students answer the prompt they want to answer and not the one they've been asked. <laughs> right. Or they don't really think about what the question is asking, right? I always say, again, this is very much like the one above it. I don't really care what book you pick or what poem you pick or piece of art, I'm not judging your choice. I want to know what your choice tells me about you, okay? So the other thing is it doesn't necessarily have to have liked it, right? Now, it does say joy in the first part, so I think you can, but the question is really why is it meaningful to you? You could have written, you know, read a book or listened to something that you found really troubling, but maybe it motivated you to take action on something, that could still be written about. Um, it doesn't just have to be your favorite of something. Um, you know, I think most people will often go with a book here. Um, you know, I think it's sometimes the obvious choice. But remember, you have a great selection to choose from. You know, perhaps think outside the box. Um, is there a picture you have in an album, in a, in a frame? You know, did you, were you really close to your grandmother and she taught you, you know, the reason it's, it's memorable to you is she passed away, but she left these legacies of, you know, loving to bake, or maybe she was, um, you know, one of the first women to vote in your family or whatever, and she, you know, empowered you to remember that that's a privilege not everybody is given, you know, in, in every country in the world or whatever. You know, if that's meaningful to you, that's what I want to know. Because I don't, at the end of the day, and I'm not being, trying to be mean here, but I don't really care about your grandmother, right? I care about you and what mm-hmm. your relationship with your grandmother tells me about you. Um, and so, again, anything that you feel really moved you, um, and is a good reflection of who you are. Um, you know, was there a movie that made you look at people in a different way? Um, I think you also, the big caveat I always have here is you really have to find the happy medium between telling the reader enough about the piece of art, uh, you know, literature or whatever that you're describing so they understand it because you kind of have to presume they may or may not know what you're talking about, but not turning it into a book report. And again, you know, so often people end up picking a book here and they spend too much of their precious word count essentially writing a book report and then leave like the last paragraph for why it influenced them. And I want the kind of reverse, you know, of 400 words, which, you know, is really less than a page. You know, I think you want to spend a third or less on the piece of the piece of art or piece of you know literature you're talking about, and the rest on its meaning to you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that that provides a pretty good rule, and it's similar to the essay before. You know, again, briefly outline what the issue is or what the play is or whatever it might be, and then spend most of it talking about why it matters to you. Yeah, because you know the essay at the end of the day is really an opportunity to add color to what is an otherwise very black and white application. Right, and so kind of think about what color is it I'm trying to, you know, show here. You know, what what is what makes me tick, and here's my opportunity to maybe let that shine because the rest of my application, 
there's not a lot of room for that. There's not a lot of ability for that, right? It's very numbers-focused. I have other people, you know, my recommenders are going to say what they're going to say. My test scores are what they are. Um, my activities are what they are. But here's my one opportunity to give you a little glimpse into how I tick. Um, mm-hmm. And so really think about what you want that message to be. Sure. What do you think about, I mean, you mentioned the picture of the grandmother. I was also thinking, I talked to a lot of students who are really, you know, really the book that's meant the most to them is maybe an autobiography or a biography of a sports hero, you know, and and there might be some important messages in there. And my take is if this is the what is sincerely going to matter most to you, then that probably is what you should write about it. But I'm curious about your thoughts. No, I think it is, too. I think, again, the caveat is also making sure it's not so much about the other person. That's always, you know, and and I know you and I have had this discussion as we have with our colleagues. You know, for a long time, one of the the essays on the Common App was, um, you know, tell us about somebody who's had a significant influence on you. And we generally guided students away from that question because it ended up being, you know, owed to your biology teacher, owed to your mother, owed to your, you know, your long-lost, you know, aunt, whatever the case may be. And then I think your grandmother sounds awesome, and I know zero about you, right? <laughs> so I think if you've got a memoir, an autobiography, something like that, I think it's absolutely, totally fine to write about it. But just be thoughtful that, again, the person that, you know, they want to admit is not the person you're writing about. It's, it's you, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Great. Okay, so let's go on to question three, which I think is a particularly tough one. Um, Contemporary higher education reflects a tension between preparing for a meaningful life and preparing for a career. What are you looking for in your undergraduate education? Which emphasis is more important to you at this time and why? So in my experience, I'm not sure I've ever had a student pick this essay prompt. (laughs) This is... This is not one that screams, yes, I want to answer this. Um, For most, at least my own students, you may um, have a different experience. Um, I think the question here is not a bad one, but I think it seems like a loaded question to a lot of students. You know, which emphasis is more important to you at this time? And I, I have a lot of students who think, like, there's a right answer here, but I'm not sure what it is. Like, are they, do they want me to say it's more important to pick a career? Is it more important to talk about developing a meaningful life? Like, What's the right answer? If you tell me, I'll answer it, right? And so I think for that reason, a lot of students don't like to answer this question, and I, and I get that. Um, I think if you're going to answer this question, you know, they want a, an honest answer, right? They want to know how are you going to balance, you know, deciding what you want to do with the rest of your life or at least major in, which is very well may not be what you do <laughs> with the rest of your right. life. But, um <laughs> You know, and, and, and kind of how do you want to grow as a person? And, and this is actually a nice segue to the next question, which we're going to get to in a minute, which is kind of the Jesuit philosophy of development of the whole person, uh, which is what I think is also, also ultimately getting at, is um, how are you going to balance essentially studying and, and, and knowing that that's an important part of your experience here, but also developing into an adult, right? I always say I think we get a little too focused on getting a degree from college and forget that part of the reason we go to college is to learn to be a grown-up. And um, I think a little bit of this is, is what that's asking is, um, you know, like I said, reflects a tension um, between preparing for a meaningful life and preparing for a career. Um, and so, you know, I think what it also is, is what are you looking forward to about college, right? It's, it, I think you could also look at this in a broader, um, a broader context. But again, don't forget that nice little word at the end and why. Um, you know, that is always, it's, it's that little tiny question and it's the most important part and it's the part that people tend to skip over. 
Mm-hmm. I kind of, I think too that, um, I think that they're sort of maybe even pushing people a little bit in this question to get them to think beyond just college as a career and that it is about being an adult but it's also about getting an education that that education in and of itself has value now I could be reading it this way because I went to read and I worked at University of Chicago, both very nerdy institutions, <laughs> which which are all about education having value in and of itself. So what do you think about that? Do you think that's part of it as well, potentially? I think that could very well be. It also may be why students generally avoid that essay like the play. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they don't know how to answer that question particularly well. Um, and again, like you said, I mean, look at the, it's in the question. It's a tension between those two, right? And how do you navigate that tension? Um, and again, that's why I think people don't answer it. But yeah, I do think um, that there is learning for learning's sake. It doesn't always have to have a goal. It doesn't have to say, well, you know, now that I have this degree, now I can go work here. Um, that's not really the sole point of college. And if there's ever a place that would, would argue that, it is Boston College. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, all right, let's move on to question number four. And so I, I, I do not speak Latin. I never studied it, so I'm probably mispronouncing this. But magis, a Latin word meaning more, is often cited in reference to goals of Jesuit education, which seeks to help students become better, do more, and have as much impact on society as possible. How do you hope to achieve the magis in your life? And just so you know, we've got three minutes left to talk about this. Okay, I was wanting to be able to say that I totally knew how to pronounce that. I was Googling it while you were talking. I'm like, oh, maybe I can say it. I know, but I have no idea how you pronounce that either. I'm glad. Um, I don't feel so bad then. <laughs> no, and I work at a Jesuit institution, so that's probably not great that I don't know that. But um, so, you know, as I said, I did work at Georgetown, which was also um, a Jesuit institution. And, you know, I think one of the things you need to know about a Jesuit institution is it's not just Catholic. I think people would think, oh, well, Georgetown, BC, they're Catholic. And I'd always say, no, they're Jesuit. And people would say, it's not one and the same, and I'd say, absolutely not. Um, Jesuits happen to be Catholic, um, but Jesuits are really their own brand of Catholicism, in my opinion. Um, They look at things differently. Um, They're um, very um, um, social justice-focused. They're very service-focused. Um, and, and this whole philosophy um, is really the, the basis of the Jesuit, the Jesuit belief. Um, it, at Georgetown, we had a, you know, the Jesuit philosophy of cura personalis, care for the whole person. Um, and again, I think that's why I said this is kind of reflected in question number three, right? They're really interested in cultivating all aspects of you, not just your intellectual development, but also your social, your emotional, your spiritual development. Um, they really want to make you the best version of yourself. Um, I was once asked when I was giving a presentation at, um, on Georgetown um, how it would be if to be Jewish there. It was asked by a student who was um, thinking about applying, who was Jewish, and I was thankful to have a um, Jewish alum with me um, helping me do the presentation. It just happened to. And he said, you know, when he was at Georgetown, um, the Jesuits never made him, you know, try to, try to convert him or do anything like that. What they always said is, we want to help you become a better Jew. Um, which I thought was really telling, and that's something you're going to get at every Catholic university, frankly. And so um, I think this is what they're asking. How, you know, what aspects of yourself are you looking to develop? Um, you, know, what, you know, what are your intellectual interests? What are your personal interests? What are your social interests? What are your spiritual interests? Um, how do you see BC as helping you to kind of develop those? And, and where would you like to see them, them you know, land? And, and, and I think you don't have to hit all of those, 
in your essay. And again, you have 400 words, um, so you know you need to be very concise and on point. Um, but I think you really want to think about what am I really hoping to approve upon in college and what can the Jesuit philosophy with there help me with? Because, again, it's not just about getting a degree at, at BC. It's about kind of making you, like I said, the best version of yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. And I think, um, I think we're done there. Listen, Karen, thanks so much. This is really helpful. Um, all right, everyone, we're going to take a short break. But when we return, we'll be talking about need-blind and need-aware admissions. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvin Vora weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before the break, this segment will be all about what it means when colleges are need-blind or need-aware and how it impacts a student's admission to that college. And don't worry, we'll be defining those terms. My, my guests on the show to help me figure it out for you are Mary Sue Yoon and Abigail Anderson, both former admissions officers and current college coach consultants. Welcome, Mary Sue and Abigail Anderson. How are you today? Hi, wonderful. Thanks I'm for good. having us. Okay, great. All right, so let's dive right in. I think that um, when when I talk, I mean, it, people are confused already when I say need based aid, when I say merit based aid. I mean, let's talk. Let's really break it down 
and talk about mm-hmm. what does need-based aid mean? Let's just start with that. Okay. So there are really um, two types of aid, financial aid, that an admissions office could give out. Um, the first would be need-based aid. And so need-based aid is where they're looking at um, some information that the family has sent in. Usually it's the FAFSA, which is the free application for federal student aid, um, or something called this, and or something called the CSS profile form. Um, and they're determining based on the family's assets and income and, and other criteria um, whether that family has financial need, whether they need money to uh, pay the college tuition, room and board and fees. Um, so financially, this need base is going to be based on that family's financial picture. Okay, and when people say need-based aid, I think a lot of people think that means loans. Is that true, or can it be something else? You know, it can be a combination of loans. It could be grants, depending on whether the student is eligible for a grant, either from the institution or federal grants, like a Pell Grant. Um, It could be uh, things like a work-study job. Um, So it it can be a combination of factors that can go into that need-based aid. Okay. All right. Great. So when someone's applying for financial aid as opposed to scholarships, that's when the the idea of need comes into play. Right. Exactly. Okay. All right. All right. So let's go, let's go to the next level of definition then. And I know for everybody listening that this is pretty dry, but I, my sense is that a lot of people are confused by this. So I think this level of detail is important. So Mary Sue, what is need blind admissions and Mm-hmm. Compare that to need-aware admissions, please. Okay. So um, admissions offices sometimes aren't always uh, upfront in this information, um, but we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. Um, but basically, need-blind admissions, uh, which is true for some of the most highly selective schools, um, but it basically means that they're going to look at the student's application and determine whether that student is uh, uh, eligible for admission um, based entirely on their academic credentials and the other pieces of the application. They will not take into account the family's financial picture and their ability to pay um, as part of the admissions decision. So the admissions office goes through, they make their decisions, and then they turn it over to the financial aid office who would then figure out what financial aid packages um, the students that they've admitted would be eligible for. Um, Need-aware admissions, or sometimes called need-conscious admissions or need-sensitive admissions, um, is a policy where the student is, sorry, the college is going to look at the family's financial aid neediness um, in determining the admissions decision. And so it will be a combination of not only what's in the student's academic um, and application credentials, but also what the family's ability to pay would be. Um, and, and the combination of those two factors is what is going to lead them to the decision. Um, so, and the idea there is that, you know, with the exception of uh, perhaps a very few number of schools, the schools don't have unlimited endowments. And so they need to prioritize, um, you know, what their financial aid uh, packages are going to go to because they may not have the ability to kind of fund every student that um, is going to be admitted to the school. So it's it's being aware of what the family's financial need picture is when determining admission. Okay. All right. Um, 
So the big question that I think we're going to have to summarize, we're going to have to get to at the end here is, does that mean that families shouldn't bother to apply for financial aid then? Because it'll because uh, it'll keep them from getting in. But I think we're going to get to that. Right. We're going to explore this issue a little bit more. So first, let's talk a little in a little bit more detail about um, how need blind admissions decisions are made. And you sort of touched on this already, but let's just be really right. explicit about yeah. it. Right. So, um, so in my admissions career, um, I worked at Barnard College, and uh, I also went to Cornell University. And both of those schools are need blind in their admissions policies. Um, and what that means is we were able to go through the admissions process entirely looking at the student's academic credentials, their essays, their letters of recommendation, all of the things that generally went into an admissions decision. Um, and we didn't look at whether the student had checked yes or no on that am I applying to aid box um, on the application um, because it really didn't matter to us. We, we weren't taking into account at all the family's ability to pay when we were making the admissions decision. Um, so then after the admissions decisions were made, then basically we, we would, before the student was notified of their acceptance, we would turn the admissions files over um, to the financial aid office who would then work up financial aid packages um, for the students that we had accepted and they'd be able to kind of calculate what the financial neediness was of this particular incoming group of students that we had admitted. Um, you know, I think it's it's a wonderful situation to be in, but certainly not a situation that every school can do. And to be clear, there are some schools, which I think you're going to go into a little more detail in your third segment, who maybe need blind. In other words, they're not looking at ability to pay as part of the admissions decision, but they may not be able to still meet that 100% need. And that's kind of a different issue. Um, mm-hmm. But for the two schools that I just mentioned for, for Barnard and Cornell, not only were they need blind, but they were also able to meet 100% of demonstrated need um, for the family. So basically, if you had the credentials to get into those schools, we were going to find a way um, to uh, hopefully get a financial aid package that was um, making the, the, the tuition costs and, and room and board and fees um, accessible for that family. Um, so we, you know, we're in that nice situation, but... Um, a combination of being need blind in our admissions policies, but also being able to meet 100% of need. Mm-hmm. I remember when I worked at University of Chicago, um, it was the third institution I'd worked at, and it was the first one I worked at where I knew that if a student demonstrated need, we would be able to fund them, and we could see whether a student marked yes or no, but it had absolutely zero impact on whether we admitted that student or not. And a lot of people had trouble believing that, but when you're at an institution with a nice, sizable endowment, it really is possible to do. I would say that also the flip side of that is that um, sometimes need blind also means on the, on the positive side. Sometimes I would get people who would say um, at schools, you know, when I was working for schools that were need blind, well, you know, my family has the ability to pay, meaning like they had a lot of assets and, um, and we didn't care on that side either. So... I mean, we always think of it as being able to help the families who maybe don't have the resources, but it also didn't help the families that maybe had an abundance of resources um, get in either. So need blind is working both ways in that mm-hmm. situation. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, Abigail, I know that you worked at an institution that was need aware. Can you can you tell us how those decisions, those how that impacted the admissions decisions? Absolutely. So, as you mentioned at the beginning of this segment, I most recently worked at Reed College, which is pretty, um, actually very open about reading need aware, but meeting 100% of a family's demonstrated need, which I think Mary Sue just mentioned will be discussed later on. At Reed, we were going through our reading season from January through March and reading our uh, applications more or less without thinking about aid. We were able to get through about 90 to 95% of our class without factoring the students' financial aid into or their neediness into our decision. But there was always a margin, a rather slim margin, luckily for us at Reed, of maybe 5 to 10 students who were um, maybe had borderline qualifications or were within the academic range where we might usually waitlist them or defer them in some way that we would come back to at the end of the season and look at and review the decision we had already made on their file, taking into consideration how the college needed us to allocate our financial resources. So for some of those students, that did mean that we would end up changing a decision based in part on their neediness or the amount of financial aid that they were needing from the college or in part based on our own institutional priorities for that year. So whether it was that we needed more men in this class or we were looking for that elusive student from the state of Delaware, there were a lot of different competing institutional priorities that we would take into account in that last 5 to 10% of the class where we were taking need into account. Okay. And it sounds like, I mean, I wonder from the way you phrase it, it sounds like maybe it would help a student then as well. Like if there was a man like a male student from Delaware who could pay, but who otherwise might have been deferred, that's a student that you would maybe then go ahead and admit. There are parts of the process where it can work like that. And it's a tough topic to talk about because there's really not much, as Mary Sue was mentioning, that a student can do to control what a particular institution's institutional priorities are in any given year. But that absolutely could have been part of the factor for some students. Okay. All right. Interesting. And then on the flip side, you know, maybe if you were a full need student from a state where I know Reed has a lot of Californians. So maybe a full need student from California might be at a disadvantage. But again, only if you're in that sort of bottom 10% or 5% of students who might be admitted but who were on the margin. Is that accurate? That that is, I I would agree that that is true for Reed. It was the borderline student. There were really difficult decisions. But again, at a school with limited, with a wonderfully large endowment and very generous donors, but not the endowment of a place like University of Chicago or Harvard, we did have to stretch our dollars and think very strategically about the students we needed or wanted to get on our campuses. 
Mm-hmm. And I think what Read Faces is faced by a lot of students, or by a lot of schools, I should say. No, yeah. Carlton. Carlton was very public about it. And I actually, the way I sort of think about it is that I respect the schools that are open about it. That I think a yeah. lot of schools do it and maybe don't admit it, but, you know, this school really, these schools do. Yeah, and I actually, in doing a little bit of research before coming on the show this afternoon, realized that there are less than 50 institutions in the entire United States that are both need-blind and meet full demonstrated need for their U.S. applicants. And so that's a really small group of students, or schools rather, when you think about the entire landscape of higher education, less than 50 have the endowment to be able to be both need-blind and meet 100% of demonstrated need. Right. Yeah, out of 3,700 four-year institutions in this country. So that's a pretty small percentage. So um, now I want to ask one more question, and I don't know if you'll know the answer to this because you didn't work in financial aid, but would there be a difference then also between if a student applied for aid but maybe only needed 10000 you know, out of a $60,000 tuition um, versus a student who needed, like I said, full tuition or pretty close? Mm-hmm. Like how, mm-hmm. how much would it impact that, ten, that student who just needs a little bit of money, relatively speaking? So schools take on that part of the challenge in a lot of different ways. And like we say, with so many of our answers at College Coach, it depends on the institution. Um, there, I was at Reed at a time where we looked at students um, not considering the amount of aid that they needed. So if you needed $10,000 in aid or $40,000 in aid, it didn't matter. You needed aid, and that was what we were looking at. And then I was also at Reed at a time when the amount of aid you needed did factor into our decisions. So there are many ways to go about it. I think schools go about that challenge in both in both scenarios. But um, in general, I think the majority of schools are taking into account the amount of aid that is needed by a family mm-hmm. in order okay. to stretch those dollars. Sure. And then, so I guess the the kind of final question, though, that people are going to ask is, so should I not bother applying for aid then? And and my take on it is, of course, you should apply because right. you shouldn't go into $200,000 worth of debt to go to college. So what's your take on that? I completely agree with you on that take. Um, there is, in my mind, there are so many more pitfalls to applying for aid or excuse me, so many more pitfalls cannot applying for aid than there are um, in going through the application process and seeing what comes out of it. Um, while I was at Reed, checking the box alone was not enough to change a decision on a student's file. So saying yes or saying no would not immediately mean you're in or you're out. It's like we say, it's a, it's a puzzle piece in the process, but it's not enough to immediately deny or immediately accept a student, whether you check that box or not. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, great. So I think we're all pretty affirmatively on the side of um, that you absolutely should apply for aid if you need it. Yeah, okay. 100%. Okay. okay. All right, wonderful. Well, I'm going to go ahead and... Um, 
Let's move on to the next segment, but I just really want to thank both of you, Mary Sue and Abigail. You've both been extremely helpful on this. And um, so when we return, uh, we'll be talking with our next guest about gapping in financial aid packages. Thanks so much, everybody. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Up Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back for the third and final segment today of Getting In. During our last segment, we discussed schools that were need-blind or need-aware, two very confusing terms. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we were able to clarify those a bit. Uh, well, gapping in financial aid packages is probably another new term for you. Luckily, Kathy Ruby, College Coach Finance Consultant, is here to help me unpack and explain the term and what it means for you as a financial aid applicant. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, Sally. Good to be here. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. All right, so let's start with just sort of the basics of um, what is gapping? I think that's very confusing for people. Yes, well, and I think you addressed it a little bit earlier earlier in the in the segment, but um, mm-hmm. gapping is essentially it's a financial aid policy. So it's not an admission policy. It, it's a financial aid awarding policy, and it happens after a student has been admitted to a college. 
Um, and essentially what a gap is, is when a college decides not to meet your full demonstrated need. So remember, <clears throat> financial need is defined as the college's cost of attendance, so tuition fees, room and board, books and personal expenses, minus the calculated expected family contribution, or you'll hear it referred to as EFC. So the difference between the cost of attendance and the expected family contribution is your financial need. And a college that says they'll meet it fully will meet it fully with a mix of grants and hopefully mostly grants and scholarships and a little bit of loan and a little bit of work study. Um, but a college that gaps may not meet that need fully. So um, they may leave a gap of a few thousand dollars or several thousand dollars, whatever it might be, um, between what the formula calculates you can pay and what they're able to give you. So that's what a gap is. Um, you know, it's important to, to remember here, too, that even if a college says they meet full need, um, remember that doesn't necessarily mean it will be affordable for your family. Um, it, it improves the likelihood that it will be, for sure. Um, but remember that, you know, somebody else is calculating how much they think you should contribute. And so you may or may not agree with what that EFC is, but the college is going to calculate it in a certain way, and they treat everyone the same, and they calculate it, you know, using a set number of variables. Um, but remember, they're going to decide how much they think you should pay. You don't get to decide how much you think you should pay. Right, right. Yeah, which is, uh, I think, alarming <laughs> sometimes. So Yes. Um <laughs> Yeah. And and I can tell you that when I've talked to families, I've I've both heard stories that were, you know, I kind of was less sympathetic and then stories where I was extre extremely sympathetic, you know, where families mm -hmm. had an asset that couldn't be easily turned to, you know, to cash. Um, in that situation, I was sympathetic. And then in another sympath in other situations, you know, I actually had a student say, well, I just bought a new car, so I can't afford these payments. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking... <laughs> You didn't need to buy a new car. You know, you're a student. Why do you need a new car? Exactly. Um, so it, it is. It really is a subjective, um, but it is the college that gets to decide. So let's yeah. let's kind of break it down a little more. Like, who actually does gap usually? Well, so Which actually, colleges? actually, most colleges gap. Um, mm -hmm. In, in today's world, most colleges are not able to meet the full demonstrated need for all of their admitted students. So let's first talk about public universities. So at public universities, most of the time, the money that they have to administer is, you know, federal and state grants. They might have a little bit of institutional money to give to the neediest of students. So most of the time for public universities, if they're going to meet someone's full need, it's probably going to be a lower income family, a, a low income family. Um, and, and for the vast majority of their students, public universities aren't able to meet full demonstrated need. Now, there are some exceptions to that. Like, for instance, University of Michigan says that they meet full need for um, Michigan residents. So, mm -hmm. um, but... But that's an example of public universities tend to meet need for a pocketed, you know, a certain population of students, and they can't meet it for everyone else. Mm -hmm. um, among private colleges, it's probably easier to talk about the ones that don't gap, um, which are the ones you've already mentioned, um, which are, they tend to be highly selective. If you just do an internet search for, you know, schools that meet 100% of need, you'll get a list of anywhere between 60 or 80 or 90 of them is about it, that say that they can meet full demonstrated need. Um, and then all other private colleges gap one way or another. They don't necessarily gap everyone, um, 
but they they gap a certain they gap a certain portion of their pool. Um, just one other thing too about schools that meet full need, um, and for any college actually, you improve your chances of having your need met when you meet the college's deadlines. So mm-hmm. even a college that meets full need, sometimes they will reserve the right to gap someone who hasn't met their deadline because mm-hmm. they have budgets too. And so it is a, you know, they'll have a deadline and if you don't meet it, you run the risk of not having your full need met. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is very important, actually. Meet the deadlines. Yeah. <laughs> and, and especially these days, now that all the information is available on the college's websites, there's not a really mm-hmm. good excuse for missing them. Right. So, exactly. Yeah. Because the, the pamphlet didn't get thrown away by accident or whatever it was. You really right. can go to every college's website. You can make a spreadsheet of every college's uh, deadline, and there's no reason to miss them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Great. All right. How do I know if a college does gap or not? Um, well, <laughs> you won't, they, most of them don't come right out and say we gap. Um, but what you won't see is language that says we meet full need, right? So there will be no language about that on the financial aid office website. Um, you know, the, the other thing you can do is you can look at some of the data that's out there. Um, colleges complete surveys every year. Um, for various agencies that get published. So, you know, the website that I often refer to is the College Board's Big Future website. Um, The College Board is, of course, the organization that administers the SAT, but their website is a very useful resource. And on that website, you can look up any college. Um, You can learn all about it. You can learn sort of what the college is all about. You can learn the admission criteria or at least the profile of students who've been admitted there. You can learn about how selective they are. And then there's a section where they publish information about their financial aid program. And on that page, it's called financial aid at a glance for the particular institution. It will actually say um, the average percent of need that was met. And it will say the percent of needy students who had their full need met. So if you see 30%, that means only 30% of students had their full need met. Um, And if you see, you know, 80% on average of need was met, that tells you something else as well. So at least it gives you a sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a really good tip. So everyone should use college boards. That's collegeboard.org. Their big future site. So it's bigfuture.collegeboard.org. Thanks for that. Yep. All right. So who do colleges gap? Do they gap all students all the time? Like, how does that work? Yeah, (laughs) as usual, it depends. So (laughs) I actually asked my colleagues, my uh, fellow college finance uh, experts at College Coach, because we've all worked at a variety of colleges. I happen to have not worked at a college that gapped um, in the last 15 years. So So I wanted to find out from my colleagues, what are the different reasons that a college might gap or who might they gap in their applicant pool? And so it really does depend. Um, And some colleges will gap everyone a little bit. And then some colleges will meet full need for some students and gap others quite a bit. Um, It really just depends on the college and what they're trying to accomplish. Um, Certainly, your student's academic profile as it relates to other colleges or other colleges, sorry, your student's academic profile as it relates to other students admitted to that college. That's certainly a big factor because that's, that's one, that was one criteria that came back over and over again. So the strongest students in an applicant pool are the least likely to be gapped. 
Um, but that being said, actually, a couple of my colleagues said that if you were at the very top and it was a school that was pretty sure you probably weren't going to come um, because, you know, they were just your backup, really backup school, um, they might gap you because they're, they don't think you're going to come anyway. Um, hmm. And so they might be more likely to meet full need for somebody who's right in their wheelhouse, you know, who perfectly meets their profile. Um, but again, it depends on the college. Generally speaking, though, the stronger you are academically in a pool, the less likely it is that you'll be gapped. But then there can be all kinds of other criteria, like, you know, the major that you're choosing, the geographical location you're coming from, all kinds of different things. So, I mean, what's happening in the background is that colleges are running analyses of of how likely a student is to yield based on the amount of money that's offered. And they're looking at historical data. They're running complicated regression analyses of, of likelihood to enroll based on what they're offering. So they're really trying to walk the line between, they're trying to help as many students as they can, but stay within the limited dollars that they have. Mm-hmm. So to a certain degree, this is like need-based aid kind of being used a little bit in the same way that merit-based aid is used, yeah. which is to attract a student to the college. Right. Yeah. So, and, yes. And that is exact. And that's been, that's actually been happening for, I mean, years and years and years. And it's called preferential packaging, essentially, that mm-hmm. students who you want the most are the ones that you'll meet, meet need for the best. Um, and do know that, I mean, I, I will also add just as a, as something I just want to make sure to point out, we're making the colleges sound like um, sort of uh, faceless bureaucracies, but do know that there are people behind these decisions and that they're, I mean, they, they, they are in the business to try to provide access. So they, they are still interested in hearing from you and trying to help you wherever they can, but they've got to work within the constraints of, of the budget that they've been dealt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So in, um, in the sort of uh, two minutes that we have left, yeah. um, is there anything that you can do to protect yourself against gapping? Um, well, certainly, you know, if you're a competitive, competitive enough student that you can apply to the schools that meet full need, that's, that's great, right? But, um, but it also comes back to the list. Always it comes back to the list. So you want to make sure that you've got enough schools that are your, um, you know, the schools that you're going to have no problem getting into or that you're just right for, you know, that you're, you're right on target for. So you want to make sure you have a list that has plenty of those schools. Um, You probably also want to make sure you have a financial safety like the in-state public university that you know you can afford if if the other ones you're looking at are private. Um, So, but that's that's the best thing you can do is make sure you've got plenty of schools that you like that you know you're going to have no problem getting into um, Mm -hmm. and that are just right for you. And I'll actually, I'm just going to close up by saying that I had a student who was admitted um, to one of the less selective colleges that I worked at. And Mm -hmm. he was full need, but he was a very strong student. And he ended up having to pay, I think it was something like $50 a month. That was his total cost. You know, he had like a very, and he covered it with a relatively small loan. So Mm -hmm. the no problem, his family said, we don't want him to take out loans. He was a strong student. We were a no problem for him. He went for Mm -hmm. it and got tons of mentoring. The faculty loved him and he did really well. So I just like to stress that story. Yeah, so absolutely that you have to open your mind to the to the range of schools that are out there because because mm-hmm. there are lots of good ones out there who who may treat you well because they want to recruit you. Mhm. Yeah, absolutely. And he uh and 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 
one of the things that people in admissions offices always keep in mind is how do we keep the faculty happy? And this kid, the faculty were super happy. And that also <laughs> meant that he got great recommendations when it came right. time for him to go to graduate school. So, all right. Well, thank you so much, Kathy. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and thanks all to right, all the happy rest. Happy to be here. Okay, great. And uh, thanks to all the rest of my guests today. Um, I want to let you all know that we have a great lineup for next week's show that I want to tell you about. Ian Fisher will be returning as guest host, and he'll be discussing undergraduate research opportunities, visual and performing arts, and he'll finish up by reviewing public loan forgiveness policies um, with a member of our finance team. Finally, just a reminder that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. So get in there and check out the archive. The last two weeks, our experts have covered the Apply Texas application, the difference between the financial aid forms, FAFSA, FAFSA, that is, and CSS profile, and best of all, talked with a current college student about how ha- how to be happy in college, even if you don't get into your top choice school. And these are among many other great topics. Um, And don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. Thanks again. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Music